0: And as you do, please find your way to Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, will be our primary text, Romans 10, 14 through 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, beginning of the New Testament, you hit Acts, then Romans, first, second Corinthians, go back to the left, Romans 10, 14 through 17, my name is Jason, I serve as one of the elders, and before we jump into this, I want to pray for one of our elders, uh, Derek and Ashley Schmidgall, it feels like they can't win right now, just like one of these things over and over again that just continues to be one thing after another. And I don't want to go into details. It's their stories to tell, but the scriptures are really clear about lifting up our leaders and um, our elders in particular. And so I just want to take a moment to pray for them. They're heavy in my heart and mind this morning, and I know you know them and love them and that they serve and love you well. So let me just, before we dive into this, pray for, for them and their family. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful um, for the men and women that you've entrusted to us as a church family who take care of us who lead us and who love us and derek and ashley have been some of those faithful people for years at church in the square and most recently um in derek's appointment as an elder and as i texted him this morning and prayed for him it just feels like it's one thing after another and i know that's many people's stories as well and they would be the first to say they're not the only ones And yet we just want to take a moment and just thank you for them and ask that you would be near to them, that you would be close, that you would be a comfort, and that even through this, that they would see that you're up to something, that you are a God who is teaching them to abide and to trust and to receive and give love even in the middle of frustrations one after the next. And so may we be a church family that love them well, that show up in ways that make sense and that are encouraging and are a comfort to them. And we pray for healing and restoration and rest and peace. We pray all of that for our friends in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 10. We're still in this particular portion. If you remember, uh, Paul, uh, in about chapter 9, shifts a little bit and starts talking directly to his Jewish readers. This is like the religious bunch. Grew up going to church um, and kind of has a way of believing and thinking spiritually that maybe a lot of his Gentile or non-Jewish readers didn't have. And so in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is taking concert with them, if you will. And in particular today, he's inviting them and I think subsequently inviting us to think about our mission, to think about our purpose as God's people. And what what it means ultimately is one uh, group of people who wrote what's called the Westminster Confession or Catechism put it. They said, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is beautiful. And in this age, I think part of that calling is meant to invite other people to glorify God and enjoy him forever. His glorification is not just for us. His enjoyment is not just for us. But actually, we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul puts it elsewhere. And I think when it comes to talking about this sort of stuff, whether we call it evangelism or discipleship or living on mission, whatever, like, cliche the newest generation of followers of Jesus use, we all have sort of mixed reviews about what it means to share my faith. And, And perhaps the way that we would put it as many of us as in a millennial generation, of like imposing our views on somebody else. And so we have different mixed reviews and understandings, if you will, about this whole idea. And so I want to be helpful to us, as I think God has been helpful to me this week, to unwork some of my own learnings and my own apprehensions about what it means to be on mission as a follower of Jesus in this part of the world, in this part of the city. And so to begin with, what I'd like to do is sort of zoom back. Even though Romans 10 is our text, I want to zoom back a little bit and consider what exactly is our purpose? What is our missional context, and what does it mean to live with gospel purpose? And then I'd like to highlight Romans 10. In particular, Paul is going to zoom in on one of those aspects. So we'll look at four different aspects of our calling to live on mission, and then we'll zoom in on the last one, which is our words. And finally, I want to think about why it scares us to death. I want to talk a little bit about why we are afraid to live on mission and, and I think it's it's been exposing for me to consider my fear, and, and I hope it will be helpful and instructive for you. So we'll zoom out, then we'll zoom in, and then we'll confess our fear. Sound good? So this is how we'll organize our time together: our witness, our words, and our fear. Our witness, and then our words, and then our fear. Let me read the text for us, pray, and then we'll get to work. Romans ten verses fourteen through seventeen says, "How then will they call on Him in whom they have not heard?" And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Even now, um, I can sense my mind going into many different places, distracted about what tomorrow will bring, or even the nature of our gathering and who we are as a people and what my responsibility as an individual and as a member of this community is. And so I pray you would settle my soul pray you would settle the souls of my sisters and my brothers here. Our our minds are drawn to so many different things when you draw us into to listen to you. Because that's what happens in the spiritual realm. As soon as we give you attention, we become dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. And so we don't want to act like all we're doing today is learning facts and ideas about Jesus and trying to live those out tomorrow. What we are is a people who are being made holy. And that is hard and costly, yet beautiful and powerful work. And so we entrust ourselves to you, not to a preacher or a people, but to you, our God, that you would speak profoundly and clearly and lovingly and truthfully from your word today. And to that end, I want to be available to you. And so I pray, Father, as we hear your word proclaimed over us, that we would be humble in our response to you we'd be joyful in our response to you, that this would be good news for us long before we go tell somebody else how good it is. Would it be good news to our souls today, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to reclaim a word today. It's a term that Christians used to be known frequently by and outside of a few different streams of Christianity are sort of no longer known by this word, and it's the word witness. Christians are witnesses. Now, this might sound like a very spiritual term, but at the end of the day, it's actually a very common term. A witness is someone who has seen something, they've experienced something, and more than that, they are now being compelled or even called to account for what they have experienced and seen. We're familiar and probably comfortable with the word witness in a courtroom setting. And it's that particular idea. That Jesus instructs or even identifies his people as that you have a story to tell. You have experienced something. You have seen something. And now in Christ, you are being compelled and even called to give an account. Or as our charismatic brothers and sisters would say, to testify. Can I get an amen? You have something to testify about, to proclaim about. And so just before his ascension to the Father, Jesus gathers his disciples, and he says this in Acts chapter. One, If you'd like to flip there, go to the left, to Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. And it'd be good for us to see this word in print as Jesus has said it. Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, don't wait around. Don't just sit here and wait for me to get back. And in fact, don't try to guess when I'm going to come back. It's really important to read the Bible because sometimes we commit most of our lives to doing something Jesus very clearly said don't do. You're not supposed to do like biblical numerology and biblical math to figure out what day and season Jesus is going to come back. He says don't do that. But just as much as he says, don't do something, he says, here's what you are to do. Now, it may be easy for us to criticize those who do that biblical math and try to figure out what Jesus uh, and when he's going to come back, but we also have turned a deaf ear to what Jesus said we are supposed to do. So we're not supposed to wait around. We're not supposed to figure out what does he say? Go and be my witnesses. Go tell people what you've experienced. Go tell people what you have seen. Now, this original collection of disciples, of witnesses, they saw a bunch like, think about it. They saw miracles and teachings and healings. They saw love incarnate. They saw death. They saw resurrection. And all that they experienced revealed a single truth to them over and over and over again that Jesus is Lord. In fact, I don't think it's too, uh, too much of a stretch to say, no matter what Jesus is doing in your life, no matter what he is saying to you, he is at least saying and reminding you, I'm Lord. I'm Lord. So if you're trying to, what is God teaching me, right? We even say, like, what God's trying to teach you. God's not trying to do anything. God is doing something, and the question is, are we receptive to it? And I believe that he is at least always saying, I am the Lord. And now his disciples, his witnesses, are meant to go and live in light of that reality, to live as if that were true, because it is, that Jesus is Lord, and we're to build our lives on that. And Jesus makes it really plain. His people are meant to live in light of what they have experienced through him. Church, that was just as true for these original disciples in Acts 1 as I believe it is for us. We're supposed to live in light of what we have experienced through Christ. That's what it means to be a witness. But the Greek word that Luke employs is the writer of Acts. So as he's recording what Jesus has said, the the word he uses is really helpful and actually quite um, uncomfortable. The word for witness that he uses is martis. Martyrs is where we get the English word for martyr. And a martyr, of course, is someone who was killed for their religious belief. So to be a witness is to not someone who tells their story and tells what they've experienced as long as it doesn't cost them anything. A witness is one who comes forward to tell and explain what they have experienced, all the while knowing this is going to cost me something. So they embrace that reality. To be a witness is costly. Now, this does not mean that every follower of Jesus needs to die for Jesus in order to prove the legitimacy of their faith. That's not what that word means. Writer Madeline Lingle, who wrote the book, The Great Story, A Wrinkle in Time, explains the profound nature of witnessing this way. She says, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up. Here's what she says, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God does not exist. She's quoting Cardinal Emmanuel Schuard, which he was the Archbishop of Paris, 1940 through 1949, in her book, Walking on Water. And I think it's a brilliant definition. To be a witness is to be a living mystery. People can't figure you out. How wonderful is that? Such an enchanting way to think about following Jesus, that your neighbors are like, what in the world is going on with her? I just cannot find a box in which she fits, in which he fits. It doesn't make sense to me. See, we are called to live this mysterious life, I think, in a number of ways. Or if you like, there are many different forms of evangelism or sharing the gospel or living on mission. See, while this mission, I think, may manifest differently in different places and spaces and times, every follower of Jesus, nevertheless, is meant to be a witness. So this is not something that you elect into or opt into. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a witness. Why? Because you've experienced something, you you have heard something, and now you are meant to go and live and tell about that something. And Jesus' ministry, I think, gives us the ultimate example of what it means to be a witness. After all, he gave his life for this of witnessing something that he was given and experienced with his heavenly father in eternity past. And it does, in fact, cost him his life. So this is one of the things I love about Jesus and why even close to 40, I'm still intrigued with this man, is because he never tells you to do anything he has not already accomplished. He never tells you to do anything he's not living in integrity. This is why I love him. Each of us at some level, shape, form, and fashion have hypocrisy in our hearts, right? I am chief among them. And yet Jesus is the only person who never had an ounce of hypocrisy in himself. He never calls you to do something he has not already done. In particular, and specifically here, he was a witness before he calls us to be. And in his life, I think we can witness four things about what it means to be a witness. His presence, his service, his character, and his words. And so this is us zooming out to consider the big picture of what it means to be a witness. And I think when we look at Jesus' life, how we witness— ought to reflect what we have witnessed. So if we witness not just something or a person, but we've actually witnessed him witnessing, we should witness like him, right? You're picking up what I'm throwing down, that he has given us not only an example, but he's empowered and called us. Let's consider each of these briefly. Presence, service, character, and words, and then we'll spend the rest of our time on that last one. Presence. One of the most profound qualities of Jesus' witness is that he is simply with people. This is the whole story of the incarnation, he, he, the Son of God existed in eternity past perfectly fine, perfectly fulfilled in his glory, in need of nothing and no one, and yet he draws near to us to be with us. In fact, one of his names is Emmanuel, which literally means what? God with us. So as Christians, our presence is meant to bear witness in that kind of way, that incarnational kind of way. So what do we do? We draw close to people in suffering with empathy and compassion and lament as God in Christ drew near to us. I mean, think, think about it, how often as a people we move away from suffering. The Christians are the ones who are supposed to be drawing and moving in the other direction. Here's where that mystery starts taking place. That doesn't make sense. If, if there's an entire world moving away from suffering and here comes the church, like with joy going, we'll get close to that, that doesn't make any sense. That's the living mystery. We draw near to people as God in Christ has drawn near to us. The priest Henry Nowen wrote, as he was journeying through a number of different Latin American countries, he wrote this in his journal, that more and more the desire in me simply grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit at their doorstep, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a beautiful vision. I just want to be known as somebody who was with people and wasn't annoyed by them and wasn't always trying to create distance with them or to remain anonymous next to them. I just want to live with them. Witnesses of Jesus, I think, live that mystery. We are simply and contently present with people in everyday moments of life. That's who we are. When people tell their stories of pain and celebration, they're like, She was there. He was there. Those Christians were there. They were present. They were with us. They were in that with us. So that's what it means to be present. And there's service. So Jesus was not simply with people, right? He also served people. He met their needs with love and power. And in turn, we live mysteriously, I think, when we live with weakness and with generosity. In other words, we receive help as much as we give help depending on our personalities, we're cool with one and not the other, right? But but we see even in Jesus how he receives hospitality. He enters into people's homes. He lets them cook for him. He lets them take care of him, and he also takes care of them himself. He, he's, he's a human being who's living in real space and time with people, receiving service and giving service. See, in weakness, we receive help from our church family and neighbors. And we serve others in meaningful ways. We meet their physical, emotional, material, and spiritual needs. This is a life I think that demands explanation. Why are you so willing to receive care? Like nobody receives care right now. Everyone is like, no, I can deliver that, can I can get that delivered. I don't need you to bring that to me. I've got an app that solves that problem. I actually don't need community, right? This is what apps are built on, and not to like tear down an entire industry, but. Generally speaking, apps are built on the fact that we don't have community and so we can download something on our phone to be a stand-in for it. It doesn't make it evil. It just means we need to be mindful. We need to understand when we are using these things as a crutch in replacement of community or rather in the language of Paul in Galatians chapter 2, where we're not shouldering one another's burdens. That's what he says in Galatians 6 two. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, when we serve one another, when we shoulder their load with them and for them, we bear witness to Christ. In fact, simply doing your job is a fundamental part of service. Your work, doing your work well, is a matter of gospel service to the world, whether you see it or not. Doing your work and doing it well is a way that we live out the mission that God has called us as his people. Thirdly, character. So we have presence, we have service, and we have character. Character. We also bear witness to the gospel by cultivating character in the form of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and by living with integrity and character in the midst of this kind of calling. In, In other words, one of the things that I'm learning in process is that life is not about winning. When you are in Christ, life's not about winning. It's about showing love and cultivating character. So when we look at, at the world as like competition, and many of our industries of work like, tell us that every single day because there's reports and numbers that say this is a competition, this is a competition, this is a competition. Christians can lose their mission because we're trying to win too instead of showing love. Help us with this, God. Help me with this. That's character. Writer David Brooks observes that when we don't focus on what he calls character formation— You follow your desires wherever they take you, and you approve of yourself as long as you are not obviously hurting anyone else. See, left to ourselves, I think we live this very unmagical life that really is just about us, just like everybody else. It's not mysterious. You don't need to give an account why you keep choosing you. You will have to give an account when you continue to choose character and exhibiting the qualities of somebody else that it's just about us. But true character is a life that lived lived to announce the reality and truth about someone and somewhere else, a completely different world. Like the way that we live only makes sense if another world exists, right? If another world is actually invading the space of this one. And so we have this presence piece. We have service, and we have character, and finally we have words. There's this other dimension of bearing witness, which comprised a huge portion of Jesus' ministry, didn't it? but it's often one of the things that's vacuous in our own spiritual formation and in our own witness to the world. Words. See, I don't don't know your hearts, but I'd be willing to wager this is the one that is the hardest for many of us, right? As a general rule, most modern Christians don't mind learning and even are naturally drawn to the ministry of presence and service and character. We go, yes and amen. I love living on mission that way. But we get real uncomfortable with words. Why? Because words leave no room for doubt. Leave no room for interpretation. Leave no room for vagueness. Words leave no wriggle room. You make very few enemies these days if you just live with presence with people. If you serve and help other people and you maintain integrity and character throughout all of that, right? I mean, people love you. They will love you if you do that. And they should. That's beautiful as soon as we start talking about it and explaining what motivates this mysterious life and why we are living it, we get really uncomfortable and others get pretty uncomfortable too. I'm good with you loving me, but don't tell me that your motivation for loving me is because God and Christ loved you first. That's uncomfortable. Leaves no doubt. This is what our passage is about today. So help us, God. Witnessing by preaching good news. In our cultural moment, this is perhaps the most costly form of witnessing, or to put it another way, the most mysterious way you could possibly live today is by being absolutely clear about the truth of Jesus and your love for him. That will make no sense to people. To say out loud to believers and non-believers alike, that we trust and follow Jesus. After all, Paul warned that following Christ can look really foolish to modern people. He wrote to the progressive climate in Corinth this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who were to believe. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Preaching or speaking the good news seems like foolishness to many people. In our day, it's permissible, it's even noble to sort of garner good stories from Jesus and to say that you're trying to live like Jesus. But when we start talking and speaking the good news that Jesus is Lord, That he really died and really rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And he is the hope of the world. Let's just say we all know we're not going to make many party friends, right? We're not going to go and roll up and go, this is the guy everybody wants to talk to. And yet, in those words, in preaching the good news, the apostle tells his Romans readers that we find it absolutely necessary for salvation. Bearing witness to the good news of Jesus in our presence, in our service, in our character may draw in and cultivate a kingdom reality, a kingdom people, and create curiosity and intrigue with our friends and the people in our community, but only by clarifying this mystery of our life through the gospel, through words that communicate the gospel, leads to saving faith. That's what I'd like to talk about next. See, that's our witness, but what do we do with our words? As we've discussed, bearing witness or living on mission has a lot of different, uh, it's multifaceted. And in Romans 10, Paul focuses on our words. So if you're still in Acts, flip back to the left to Romans. Paul is going to specifically compel his readers to preach the good news or the word of Christ. And, And I just, just because like this is one of my favorite words, preach, you know, this is part of my calling, right? This isn't about me. This is about us as a people. Paul is writing to not a bunch of professional Protestants. He is writing to the people of God that they are all meant and equipped to preach the gospel, to speak and to use these words. So that's the one caveat before we read Romans 10 verse 14 and 16. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And How are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those that preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. In asking and essentially answering this succession of questions, what Paul does is he sort of lays out a clear process of individual salvation. Remember last week we looked at the cosmic work of salvation, the ecclesiastic or within the church, and then we looked at personal. So he's still speaking about the personal nature of salvation. And it's connected to what he just wrote. If you look at verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember, that's what we looked at last week, that that Jesus is both radically inclusive, that anyone and everyone can become a follower of Jesus, but he's radically exclusive. It is through Christ. So salvation comes to all through Christ. That's the good news. Salvation is possible. That's amazing, by the way, that salvation is possible. Hard stop there. Paul transitions in from that thought by asking, so, How can anyone and everyone know or call on Jesus if they've never heard of him? This is where our words become critical to God's providential plan. Paul is compelling his readers to preach the good news or the word of Christ so that people will know and believe in Jesus. He's instructing them to be witnesses, to speak about what you have seen, what you have experienced, and how you live. Not just in presence, not just in service, not just in your character, but in your words. And I think he, he lays this out pretty clearly if we look at it, if you will, in reverse order. We start in verse 15 and work backwards. We piece together this pathway of salvation he's articulating. So God sends witnesses, right? That's verse 15. As Jesus did before his ascension, now Christians all who are saved and sent by Christ. Secondly, so after God sends witnesses, those witnesses preach the good news to people. They have something to say about Jesus, and they do. Thirdly, then people hear the good news. Those words, people discover who Jesus is and what he has done even among them to the people in their community, their neighbors, their friends. Fourthly, people then believe what they hear. By God's grace and his power, this hearing is somehow majestically and beautifully turned into belief. Lastly, people called, who call on Jesus through faith and belief are reconciled. In belief, people respond in confession of sin and confessing Christ. And he summarizes everything. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. See, while God alone is providential, he initiates the plan and pathway and selection of salvation, and he alone possesses the power of salvation. That's that's Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's clear that followers of Jesus have a vital role to play in the communication of the gospel. In particular, we're compelled to preach. We're compelled to preach good news with our words. This is not just the call of vocational preachers, but of all people who know the good news, we're supposed to talk about it. All those who have heard the name of Jesus are supposed to mention his name. Faith is impossible without hearing, and hearing is impossible without preaching. So our mysterious lives, here's what it looks like. I, I believe, God help us. Our mysterious lives are to be present with our neighbors. It's to serve and love our neighbors. It's to cultivate rich character that reflects Christ. And when that begins to intrigue people and draw people in, we're to clarify that mystery by talking about Jesus. We need to speak the truths of Jesus and communicate his gospel message. It's easier said than done, right? Because even as I say that, I'm like, that's terrifying. That's scary. Because I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I don't want people to think that I'm judging them and saying there's only one way and you're not living it. Shame on you. I don't want to move in that way. That doesn't feel right. And, And when we look at the life of Jesus, like the people who got so frustrated with him were not the people to whom he was often communicating the gospel in this kind of way. It was the people who thought they already believed. It was the people who thought they'd already figured it out. And so I think we have to unpack that a little bit and where that fear comes from. We need to clarify this mysterious life that we're living through words, and I know this, is gonna, this brings up some fears. So I'm gonna, let's, let's talk about that by looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I think a couple of fears emerge depending on the way you relate to this calling. So The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5. So if you're still in Romans, back to the left. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 17 is where we'll, where we'll look. When Jesus speaks about something perhaps we're familiar with, or rather through 16. Uh, but something I think that gives us language, two metaphors, if you will, for this calling of our gospel witness. Jesus says, Matthew five thirteen through 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says his witnesses are supposed to be like salt. He says his witnesses are supposed to be like light. But what exactly do those two metaphors mean? I think, I think they give clarity to what Paul's been writing about. Salt is about preservation and flavor. So followers of Jesus are meant to embody this kingdom reality in real space and real time that is intriguing and good and beautiful to the watching world. See, this sermon is all about living in this, this, the Sermon on the Mount is all about living in this alternative reality in the midst of a world that seems like concurrently to be getting better and worse at the same time. I think we can all relate to that. It seems to be getting better and worse all at the same time. So, to be salt of the earth is about living mysteriously in our presence, in our service, in our character, giving flavor to our relationships, preserving the goodness, the shalom, the peace, the fruit of the Spirit of who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be. It's living with love and humility and empathy and joy. It's living like Jesus in a winsome way, which preserves and gives flavor to the very good world that God has made. Sometimes we're riddled with so much bad news, we forget that when God looked at his world and what he created, he said, that's very good. That's very good. Makes people curious, I think, through love. So that's salt. That's what salt is. Is meant to be when Jesus uses that metaphor for his, his witnesses. And then second, light. Light's about truth. In Jesus' words, light is about not hiding. Did you notice that? Don't put it under a basket. You're a city on a hill. You're supposed to be seen. We don't live with distinction so that our lives won't be seen. Rather, we live as a city on a hill. We let our light shine. It's maybe some of you grew up singing about that. Right? This little... Hide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to raise your hands here. It's fine. We can talk in therapy later. But so that you may be seen. We live and speak the truth about Jesus, who he is, and who we are in Christ. See, living as light is about helping people see beyond our good works. Look at verse 16, to the heavenly father. Somebody sees beyond your good works to the heavenly father when you say, this is the one who taught me to live this way. This is the one who loved me this way long before I loved you this way. This is the one who was generous to me long before I was generous to you we're supposed to point people to Jesus. We clarify, I think this mysterious nature of our witness by actually speaking and putting words to that confusion, to that curiosity, to that mystery. Now, now notice this is always important. Jesus doesn't say, "Now choose. Do you like salt or do you like light? Go be one of those." What does he say? "You and I are both. We are salt and we are light." Why? Because in Paul's language, How will they hear and believe unless what? We preach. And why in the world would they listen to us preach if they are not compelled by how we live? It's got to be both. It's got to be salt and light. Salt is this compelling way that we live. Light is the clarifying word of why we live that way and how we live that way. I think this full vision of our witness really does begin to expose our fear. Underneath all of this, I think there is trepidation, anxiety, So you see, in my experience, experience, Christians have a tendency of either individually or collectively, even in denominations or networks or streams of the church, of being salt to the neglect of light or of being light to the neglect of salt. You know what I mean? I know in different seasons, situations, I'm prone to choose one to the neglect of the other. How about you? I remember even as I was being educated to be a preacher, so literally my job is to use words to form sentences on Sunday to clarify the truth of the gospel. And after two or three years of living next to my neighbors, they asked me the greatest bump set question, right? You know, it's a volleyball illustration. They said, why have you lived this way? We've never had a neighbor like you. You like love us and take care of us. They had all these things to say. And and you know what I said? Instead of like clarifying my mysterious life, I just said, I was just raised to love my neighbors and take care of people. I had so much shame. Y'all walking away from that going, why did I do that? That the Lord cultivated something in me that was truly of him, and I took familial credit for my witness. That this was about the family I grew up in, and not in the God who saved me and who was making me holy and blameless. I was scared I was scared they would think I was crazy. You know why? Because I get confused. I don't know about you. I'm not going to put this. This is just me. You know when Paul says, this isn't necessarily from the Lord. I'm just writing right now. I'm going to tell you something. I just want to tell you something. The reason I just want to be salty and not light is because I get credit. I get credit. As soon as I go, oh, here's the truth of that, and you're going to be like, oh, we thought Jason was cool, but then he started talking about Jesus, and now we don't let our kids hang around him, right? I mean, I think it's that sort of thing where I want to be a neighbor that people esteem and not the person who keeps bringing up Jesus. I think there's that fear in me. See, sometimes we choose and live as light without salt. This is usually a more conservative or fundamentalist approach to the mission. See, at first blush, the fear underneath this approach is that people are going to die without Jesus. They're going to go to hell. And so what do we do? Well, we take the shortest, clearest, most expedient route to salvation. Here's the truth. Here's my sign. Here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to say. John 3, 16 at a football game, right? Just go and read it, believe it, and now I've done my job, right? So the fear underneath that, perhaps at first blush, seems like people are going to die without Christ. But I think when we really excavate that a little bit, and I know when that's my tendency, I, I just want to be light and not salt so that I'm off the hook. So I told them, right? So when you meet Jesus in the age to come, and he's like, your neighbor's I, I told them. I told them what they're supposed to believe. I even, like, walked them down, like, three steps and a poem at the end, and they're supposed to pray it. I told them what they needed to do. So ultimately, like, we fear, I think, guilt and judgment of God in the age to come, and so we just tell people the truth. So we think we won't be held accountable for someone else's lack of salvation, right? So to put it another way, we're prone to shed light everywhere we go, but we're never very salty. We speak truth, but nobody really cares what we have to say because they are not intrigued by the way that we live. Others of us uh, live as salt without light. Usually this is more progressive Christianity, a more modern approach, and I think this fear, um, a fear is revealed under this approach as well, that, that people are going to reject us and not like us. We start getting really clear in speaking the name of Jesus. My guess is that most of us are in this space, especially as modern people. Few of us are like passing out tracts in our office, making sure that everybody knows the Roman's Road. You may not even know what the Roman's Road is. It's a way of walking through Romans and communicating the gospel, salvation. These things are not wrong, but I think many of us probably don't opt for that. I haven't seen many of you on the street corner announcing with a bullhorn that Jesus loves them, but they better turn or something bad's gonna happen, right? It might not be us, but where we live, I think most of the time, is I just wanna be salt. I wanna live with presence. I wanna live with service. I wanna live with character, but I don't want to be clear about why. I think that's where our fear begins to get exposed. We choose to live a more gracious and loving life. Perhaps this is the way that we put it. We don't want to be judgmental, and so we don't want to use our words to clarify the way that we're living. Ultimately underneath this, I think, is a fear that we're going to be judged by people. In fact, we know that that judgment is generative. In In other words, that when we judge, we know we're going to be judged. And so we think that in communicating the gospel, that it's communicating judgment to someone, and therefore they are going to judge us and not like us. We're really salty, but no one ever really knows why. Because we never use our words to clarify the truth or the light about our life. We live with love, but no one ever knows why. See, either way, our witness, I think, is motivated by fear of judgment. Did you notice that? We neglect salt because we fear God's going to judge us. We neglect light because we fear the people are going to judge us. we got a lot of fear about judgment today. Both cause us to experience Shame and to reveal a kind of false understanding of God. You see, we fear God when we think the love of Jesus is not really true, that he doesn't actually love us. And we fear people when we think the truth of Jesus is really not that beautiful. Let me say that again. We fear God when we think the love of Jesus is not true, and we fear people when we think the truth of Jesus is not beautiful. How do we alleviate this fear? Or perhaps better, how, how does the gospel reveal to us that this fear has been alleviated in Christ so that we might be appropriate witnesses as salt and light? Well, first, if you fear God's judgment, look to the cross. Because on the cross, the full weight of God's wrath and judgment was laid on Christ. His love is true, and it frees us to know that we can do nothing, not even witness to everyone in Chicago, that would make you more beautiful to your Savior. You could convert everyone in your block and the love of Christ would rest on you the exact same way that it did before that. Because his judgment, why? Has already been eased by Christ. There is no outstanding debt by which you must pay with your good works, even in your faithful witnessing. So we can rest at ease that we don't need to just throw words at people every time we see them and hope that one of them sticks. And if you fear people's judgment, well, you better look at the cross too and so should I because on the cross we see the beautiful nature of this truth. And what I mean is that the reason that we fear people's judgment is because we think they'll feel judged and by us even sharing the gospel with them. And to be sure, the gospel does expose sin. That's really uncomfortable. But it primarily demonstrates what Jesus says, that he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. His truth is good for us. It's not condemnation, it's freedom. And this is ultimately what your friends and mine and your neighbors and mine are really actually longing for. See, if I really understood and knew that the proclamation of God's word was one of the most loving things I could do for my neighbor and it was good news for them and it was beautiful for them, it would begin to eradicate my fear. This is actually beautiful truth. It's not a condemning truth. It's an invitation into a good life, an eternal life. See, our witness is about living mysteriously with beauty and truth, salt and light, and our words are meant to clarify the mystery of our lives. And our fear, embracing this mission for one reason or another, or lacking to embrace the mission, is driven out, I think, by the love of Christ on the cross. And so wherever your fear is this morning, look to the cross you will see that the judgment of God has been satisfied and you'll see that the beauty of the gospel is put on full display. And so we can be a people who live this fully-orbed, missional life as witnesses where we're with people in presence and where we serve one another out of love, that we build character in one another through the power of God's word and then we communicate with words why that's all taking place and how that's all taking place. So church, let's go. May we be witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness because we just get caught up. I know I do. Sometimes even my home, I know, is a place where I want to be removed from people and not a place where I'm still on mission. And I imagine my friends have places too where They just know that this idea of living and speaking with distinction is hard. And so I pray that whatever fear is motivating that, is driving that, that you would alleviate that through the brilliance and power of your cross so that we would be witnesses who live as salt and light in the northwest side of this city and all over the world. For your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.